Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, literary mansplainer-in-chief, and soon-to-be Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, feeling somewhat abashed, a little bit abashed, because last episode was all about UFOs, and it occurred to me after I recorded it, oh, maybe you don't care at all about UFOs, but it was just so heavily on my mind, and then I felt badly about it, and then moreover, I felt, oh, geez, I'm probably telling people stuff they already know. I'm probably just recapping what everybody already knows, and thus making myself a bore. But I don't know. I don't know if everybody's paying attention to this the way I am. So if you were troubled, bored, annoyed at the last episode, I apologize. My heartiest apologies I extend to you. This last week was fun for me. I got a a job being in a, a movie. It's a little movie, but it's a big little movie. And I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about it or not. I I wasn't allowed to put pictures up, but I looked fairly ridiculous. And maybe maybe I will allude to it in the photo that I choose for this episode. But uh, it's a terrific big little film that I think will be called Spinning Gold. It's about the life of Neil Bogart, who was the founder of Casablanca Records in the 1970s. He led an outsized life with outsized ambitions, a little bit like Victor Frankenstein, you know, trying to make something from nothing, a little bit like Victor Frankenstein, betting it all time and time again, a little bit like Victor Frankenstein. And one of the acts on Casablanca Records was Kiss, Casablanca was their first label. All of their big early albums came out on Casablanca. And I play Bill O'Coin, who was Kiss's manager. And it's not a huge part, you know. I don't get the big parts. 
uh, for a variety of reasons. Chief among them, I'm not a great actor, you know. So, but I did get this part, and it was fun because uh, it was, you know, it's all 70s, and I was hanging out with uh, essentially Kiss, young Kiss, guys playing Kiss, but they were playing. What was fun about it was they all played their instruments and they all sang. And so, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. And it was nice to be back on set. It was nice to hang out with actors. It was fun to do some acting and uh, to work on a character. Like, all that was fun. So, you know, do I need to do it again? No. I mean, I'm kidding. I would love to do it again. And I'm not even done on the film. I, got, I have a few more days. But yeah, it was, it was a good time. It was nice to get out of the house. I mean, despite the fact that it's shot in New Jersey. I mean, what shoots in New Jersey? Nothing. Right over there by the Meadowlands, you know? Big warehouse that they used as a soundstage and built all these sets in. and uh, It was cool. But New Jersey, I mean, come on. If you're going to shoot a movie, let me go somewhere glamorous, you know? Let me go to upstate New York or something. Something glamorous. Let me go to Schenectady or something. New Jersey. But it's been a while since I've actually read the book, Frankenstein, out loud. Two weeks, by your count, probably about two weeks by mine. Last we left Victor Frankenstein and Henry Clerval. They were moving from England. They were heading from England up to Scotland and, uh, you know, passing the time and procrastinating and looking at stuff, you know, reflecting on stuff the way they do. Not much is happening the way Mary Shelley does. Uh, a little bit like my past year has been. Not much happening, you know? A lot of anxiety, not much happening. But like me, you know, he's determined to make something from nothing. And just like Neil Bogart, he's going to make something from nothing. Uh, he's got to make a she-buddy in this case. He promised Big Buddy that he was going to make a she-buddy. He's on his way to Scotland. But in the meantime, they've stopped at Oxford, home of Jude Fawley. So that's where we are, Volume 3, Chapter 2. We passed a considerable period at Oxford, rambling among its environs and endeavoring to identify every spot which must relate to the most animating epoch of English history. They're talking about the British Civil War, you know, Charles I and all of that, which nowadays, well, I don't think we think of particularly at all. Maybe they do in, in England. Maybe they still talk about it. Was it really the most animating epoch of English history? I mean, I think of World War II. I think of Churchill. But, you know, that's the bias of the recent. How do you judge these things? It's always hard, you know. When Rolling Stone makes a list of the 50 best albums, the more recent ones always get more votes. It's just the way it is. Bias of the recent. Our little voyages of discovery were often prolonged by the successive objects that presented themselves. We visited the tomb of the illustrious Hampton. Footnote. All right, let's go to that footnote. Paging to the back here, uh, finding various footnotes and such. Volume... Having a hard time finding it. Oh, come on. Ah, the Amy, oh, there's a long footnote. Hmm. The illustrious Hampton. John Hampton, 1594 to 1643. Statesman, 
and prominent amongst the leaders of the parliamentary opposition to Charles I. Now, I wonder why she is spending so much time on this, why this matters so much to her. I guess, so this was written in the early 1800s, the the story is being told in the 1700s, and the events of this British Revolution, this English Civil War, took place, I think, in like the 1650s. So it's, you know, it's not recent, recent history, but it's recent enough, I guess, that people are still, you know, flapping their gums about it. And so the audience reading this book is probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's important stuff. But I'm not sure how it relates to the story, unless you want to go metaphorically to the war within us all, the civil war that brews, you know, in all of us, the nature of good and evil, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I don't think that's that. You know, I'm reaching. So we visited the tomb of the illustrious Hampton and the fields on which that patriot fell. For a moment, my soul was elevated from its debasing and miserable fears to contemplate the divine ideas of liberty and self-sacrifice, of which these sites were the monuments and the remembrancers. For an instant, I dared to shake off my chains and look around me with a free and lofty spirit, but the iron had eaten into my flesh, and I sank again, trembling and hopeless, into my miserable self. So I guess that answers the question that I asked, that... For a moment, my soul was elevated to contemplate the divine ideas of liberty and self-sacrifice. Well, he is self-sacrificing, I guess, in a way. You know, he's sacrificing his own mental well-being. He's sacrificing for the sake of his family to make the she-buddy so that big buddy doesn't come and, you know, wipe everybody out per his promise. But the, the divine idea of liberty of liberation. That's what he needs. You know, he needs to be liberated from this curse, this juju that he put on himself. I put put the juju on me. We left Oxford with regret and proceeded to Matlock, which was our next place of rest. The country and the neighborhood of this village resembled to a greater degree the scenery of Switzerland, but everything is on a lower scale, and the green hills want the crown of distant white Alps, which always attend on the piney mountains of my native country. We visited the wondrous cave and the little cabinets of natural history, where the curiosities are disposed in the same manner as in the collections at Cerveau and Chamonix. The latter name made me tremble when pronounced by Henry, and I hastened to quit Matlock, with which that terrible scene was thus associated. Chamonix, that's where he met the big buddy, I think, right? They were in the mountains, and then they they chit-chatted. Is that what that is? I don't remember, and I don't care enough to go back to look. But, like, why are we stopping? Okay, I understand. Henry... Clerval and Richter Frankenstein stop at Matlock, but why do we as readers need to spend paragraph narrating Matlock? Like, we get it. Bad things happen. Okay, Yeshemini, you remember. Okay, I don't need to know that. From Derby, oh, come on, still journeying northwards, we passed two months, two months, in Cumberland and Westmoreland. I could now almost fancy myself among the Swiss mountains. I mean, it's a travelogue. 
It's a travelogue. We've gone, you know, we stopped at every stop along the way. I don't care. Just tell me if you made the, the she-buddy. That's what I want to know about. The little patches of snow which yet lingered on the northern sides of the mountains, the lakes, and the dashing of the rocky streams were all familiar and dear sights to me. Here also we made some acquaintances who almost contrived to cheat me into happiness. Come on! The delight of Clerval was proportionally greater than mine. His mind expanded in the company of men of talent, and he found in his own nature greater capacities and resources than he could have imagined himself to have possessed while he associated with his inferiors. I could pass my life here, said he to me, and among these mountains I should scarcely regret Switzerland and the Rhine. I mean, Henry's an extrovert, right, obviously. Frankenstein's an introvert. I've written one joke, basically, about introverts and extroverts for my new act, trying to expand it a little bit. I'm not going to say the joke now, but it's not great by any means, but it's the start of something. I'm an introvert, if you couldn't tell. I mean, you, every single person listening to this, I'm guessing, is an introvert. This is the sort of activity that appeals to the introverted amongst us. Hopefully not the perverted amongst us, although I guess we're all that too in some respect or form. But Clerval found that a traveler's life is one that includes much pain amidst its enjoyments. His feelings are forever on the stretch, and when he begins to sink into repose, he finds himself obliged to quit that on which he rests in pleasure for something new, which again engages his attention, and which also he forsakes for other novelties. Well, I mean, they spent two months in Cumberland and Westmoreland. I think he had a, a, you know, a moment or two for repose. You know, they traveled so differently then. If I go 10 days somewhere, that's a long time, especially when I'm with my kids. My God, you know, by day six, you're like enough. We had scarcely visited various lakes of Cumberland and Westmoreland and conceived an affection for some of the inhabitants when the period of our appointment with our Scotch friend approached, and we left them to travel on. For my own part, I was not sorry. I had now neglected my promise for some time. Yeah, you think so, Victor? And I feared the effects of the Damon's disappointment. He might remain in Switzerland and wreak his vengeance on my relatives. This idea pursued me and tormented me at every moment from which I might otherwise have snatched repose and peace. Then why the fuck are you hanging out in Westmoreland and Cumberland for two months? Why are you going to Scotland, dude? Why haven't you started the work? If it's tormenting you so much, why don't you just do the goddamn thing that you said you were going to do? More to the point, why are you wasting my time by not doing the thing that you said you were going to do? Nothing has been added to your character here. No story points have been furthered. Nothing has been accomplished from the moment you said you were going to build the sheep buddy until now. There's this whole detour that seems to have no place in the story. It's filler, dude. It's just filler. I'm not interested. Now I'm annoyed. I I haven't been this annoyed at this book for quite a while. I have to take a break. I have to calm myself down. 
have a sip of ice water, and just chillax. I'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, still drinking water. Still fuming about this story because, look, it's just too much, okay? For such a short book, it's so long. I'm on 100, page 167. And, you know, it just does. It, there's just not enough that happens in this book. All right. Enough complaining. More reading. I lost my place. <sighs> I waited for my letters with feverish impatience. If they were delayed, I was miserable and overcome by a thousand fears. And when they arrived and I saw the superscription of Elizabeth or my father, I hardly dared to read and ascertain my fate. Sometimes I thought that the fiend followed me and might expedite my remissness by murdering my companion. He should have. He honestly should have. The big buddy should have come and ripped Henry fucking Clerval's head clean off his body and thrown it in your chamber pot so that when you took your morning pee, uh, after dawdling in some inn in Westmoreland or wherever the hell you are, when you unzipped and took a morning pee, there was Henry Clerval staring back up at you from the chamber pot. That's what he should have done. When these thoughts possessed me, I would not quit Henry for a moment, but followed him as his shadow to protect him from the fancied rage of his destroyer. I felt as if I had committed some great crime, the consciousness of which haunted me. I was guiltless, but I have indeed drawn down a horrible curse upon my head, as mortal as that of a crime. You are not guiltless. Why are you saying you're guiltless? You're not. The only guilty party here is you. You did this. You were guiltless. 
You called this daemon into being. You summoned him from the cemeteries of Ingolstadt. You brought lightning down and animated the dead, and you're guiltless? Come on, bro. A little self-reflection. Mary, how about a little self-reflection, please? I visited Edinburgh with languid eyes and mind, and yet that city might have interested the most unfortunate being. Clerval did not like it so well as Oxford, for the antiquity of the latter city was more pleasing to him. But the beauty and regularity of the new town of Edinburgh, its romantic castle and its environs, the most delightful in the world, Arthur's seat, St. Bernard's well, and the Pentland Hills, compensated him for the change and filled him with cheerfulness and admiration. But I was impatient to arrive at the termination of my journey. We left Edinburgh in a week, passing through Cupar, St. Andrews, and along the banks of the Tay to Perth, where our friend expected us. But I was in no mood to laugh and talk with strangers or to enter into their feelings or plans with the good humor expected from a guest. And accordingly, I told Clerval that I wished to make the tour of Scotland alone. Do you, said I, enjoy yourself and let this be our rendezvous. I may be absent a month or two, but do not interfere with my motions. I entreat you, leave me to peace and solitude for a short time. And when I return, I hope it will be with a lighter heart, more congenial to your own temper. Henry wished to dissuade me, but seeing me bent on this plan, ceased to remonstrate. He entreated me to write often. I had rather be with you, he said, in your solitary rambles than with these Scotch people whom I do not know. Hasten then, my dear friend, to return, that I may again feel myself somewhat at home, which I cannot do in your absence. Okay, so they went all this way to Scotland, right? And now they're in Scotland. And then as soon as they get there, Victor's like, all right, I got to go. I got to go. Bro, I got to go. I got I to gotta go ramble Scotland by myself. I mean, I, I, I guess he's going to make the she-buddy. Having parted from my friend, I determined to visit some remote spot of Scotland and finish my work in solitude. I did not doubt but that the monster followed me and would discover himself to me when I should have finished, that he might receive his companion. With this resolution, I traversed the northern highlands and fixed on one of the remotest of the Orkneys as the scene of my labors. It was a place fitted for such a work, being hardly more than a rock, whose high sides were continually beaten upon by the waves. The soil was barren, scarcely affording pasture for a few miserable cows and oatmeal for its inhabitants, which consisted of five persons whose gaunt and scraggy limbs gave tokens of their miserable fare. Vegetables and bread, when they indulged in such luxuries, and even fresh water, was to be procured from the mainland, which was about five miles distant. On the whole island there were but three miserable huts, and one of these was vacant when I arrived. This I hired. It contained but two rooms, and these exhibited all the squalidness of the most miserable penury. 
The thatch had fallen in, and the walls were unplastered, and the door was off its hinges. I ordered it to be repaired, bought some furniture, and took possession. An incident which would, doubtless, have occasioned some surprise had not all the senses of the cottagers been benumbed by want and squalid poverty. As it was, I lived ungazed at and unmolested, hardly thanked for the pittance of food and clothes which I gave. So much does suffering blunt even the coarsest sensations of men. I don't buy this shit at all. I really don't. Okay, first of all, here's what I here's what I do like about his arrival in Orkney, the scene he describes, the castle, the palace, whose sides were continually beaten upon by the waves. I mean, now it's starting to feel like the Frankenstein of the movies, right? I always imagined him in some castle high on a cliff with the waves beating against the cliffs and he's isolated and he's, and you know, the, the weather is always bad for some reason. Uh, there's always rain and mist. I mean, it's, uh, it feels very Scottish to me, right? I like that. What I don't like is the description of the people who live in Orkney, so benumbed by their fate that they don't even pay attention to this new person, this new strange person who has rented out rooms. She paints, you know, we've, I feel like we've seen this before. She paints that, let's call them the peasant class, in very broad strokes, right? It's as if she has no familiarity with those below her station. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it seems like she has no great love for them, regardless that they are the unwashed masses to her. Now, maybe that's not the case, and I'm misreading in some capacity, but I don't think so. Because even the family there in the Alps, where uh, the big buddy was spying, you know, the French family, they turned out to be high-born. You know, they, they appeared to be peasants at first. They were the only good people in the whole story. Turns out they're, you know, they're, they're, they're rich folks on the run. So, you know, there's, there's been nobody of note in this book who comes from anything less than the landed classes. And, you know, it's a little classist, I guess. Maybe no surprise coming from the British, but it's a little classist. Um, also problematic for me is just logistically, he's going to Orkney, right? He's five miles away from the mainland. Nobody lives on this island. So where is he going to get his parts? He needs body parts, you know? And I, I'm guessing like they need to be sort of specific. And first of all, they need to be female. Second of all, they need to be, uh, well, I guess, I don't know, female legs, female arms. I don't know. Maybe those are genderless. I don't know. But you know, you need parts and there's nobody living there. So where's he getting the parts? Just a logistic question. that's bugging me. In this retreat, I devoted the morning to labor, but in the evening, when the weather permitted, I walked on the stony beach of the sea to listen to the waves as they roared and dashed at my feet. It was a monotonous yet ever changing scene. I thought of Switzerland it was far different from this desolate and appalling landscape. Its hills are covered with veins, and its cottages are scattered thickly in the plains. Its fair lakes reflect a blue and gentle sky, and, when troubled by the winds, their tumult is but as they play of a li the play of a lively infant." 
when compared to the roarings of the giant ocean. In this manner, I distributed my occupations when I first arrived, but as I proceeded in my labor, it became every day more horrible and irksome to me. Sometimes I could not prevail on myself to enter my laboratory for several days, and at other times I toiled day and night in order to complete my work. It was indeed a filthy process in which I was engaged. During my first experiment, a kind of enthusiastic frenzy had blinded me to the horror of my employment. My mind was intently fixed on the consummation of my labor, and my eyes shut to the horror of my proceedings. But now I went to it in cold blood, and my heart often sickened at the work of my hands. Yeah, when you're sewing up like organs you know, and you're mending capillaries and you're putting eyeballs back into sockets and whatever. Yeah, it's gross. Thus situated, employed in the most detestable occupation, immersed in a solitude where nothing could for an instant call my attention from the actual scene in which I was engaged, my spirits became unequal. Dude, your spirits are always unequal. I grew restless and nervous. Every moment I feared to meet my persecutor. Sometimes I sat with my eyes fixed on the ground, fearing to raise them, lest they should encounter the object which I so much dreaded to behold. I feared to wander from the sight of my fellow creatures, lest, when alone, he should come to claim his companion. In the meantime, I worked on, and my labor was already considerably advanced. I looked towards its completion with a tremulous and eager hope, which I dared not trust myself to question, but which was intermixed with obscure forebodings of evil that made my heart sicken in my bosom. End of chapter. And so we will conclude there. Finally, some progress being made on the she-buddy. Again, we've spent more time describing Oxford than we did describing how the hell he makes a lady out of parts. Parts is parts. We don't know how he does it. We'll never know how he does it. You know, it's like Uri Geller bending spoons. There's plenty of theories out there, but we'll never know. You know, except that we do know he just... He's a kind of a fraud. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, did the UFO research lead me into psychic research? Of course it did. Did that lead me into past life research? Of course it did. Did that lead me into remote viewing research? You know it did. And as much as I want to believe in everything, I have a hard time believing in much at all. Um, what does that make me? Nihilist? I don't know. I don't know. All I know, I do know this. I know a hell of a lot more about Kiss than I did the last time we recorded. I know a hell of a lot about Kiss. Um, knowledge that really is not going to serve me very well at all because I don't particularly like Kiss, although I appreciate them much more than I did. Um, yeah, they terrified me as a kid terrified me. Jay Farrow, who was also in the movie, said they also terrified him. I was a little too young, I think, to 
get into Kiss. You know, but I was too young to enjoy them. And then by the time, you know, I came of age, an age where I would enjoy them, I thought they were stupid. So, you know, when you become aware of the lyrics, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day, um, you know, you've got to, that's a fork in the road for you. You've got to decide how you feel about those lyrics. I decided, not for me. That's maybe a little too dumb even for me. So I never got into Kiss. But I do, I think, genuinely appreciate them and their longevity and their, their vision. I mean, they had a bizarre vision for themselves. And somehow they made it come true. So I do appreciate that. Much the way Victor Frankenstein had a bizarre vision and made that come true as well. Much the way I had a vision of making a podcast where I read classic works of literature out loud and comment on them as I go. That vision may be not as successful as the other ones. Even so, I take pride in my humble creation. And so should you. And for whatever humble creations you are making there in listener land, uh, we'll reassemble next time for another blood-curdling episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes of writings, musings, jokes plenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.